Snowman Podcast. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. I'm your host, as always, the Snowman. Today, folks, I want to take you back in time. Not too far back, about 77 years ago or so. Hard to believe it's been that long, but it has. The event I want to share with you today is one of daring. It's a story of careful planning about dreaming of home and freedom, and how it was achieved and lost by the participants. The story is one of the most detailed escapes in history, and it is the POW breakout from Stalag Loop 3. This event took place during the mid to later part of World War II in Nazi-occupied Poland at the time. Throughout the course of this episode, I'll be using portions of Elmer Bernstein's incredible soundtrack of The Great Escape, which is a film about this feat of Daring Do. I'll discuss the aspects of the film toward the middle or the end of the episode. Since it was a Hollywood production and still quite remarkable, the true story is somewhat different. Another resource I'll be using today is the book The Great Escape by Paul Brickhill, a man who was a POW at Stalag Luf 3. Although he didn't take part in the escape, he released a basic first-hand account of the story that no biographer would have been able to. Um, other resources I will be using is www.history.com slash the true story of the great escape. This is just a news article that you can look up. Like I've always said, do not take my word for it. Do your own research. This is a great source for you to Learn more that maybe I haven't been able to share during the course of the episode. Uh, there's on YouTube documentary called Going Underground, The Great Escape. And this contains several interviews with the survivors of the camp. And I just watched it a couple of days ago. It's fascinating. I mean, these guys remember every single detail. And they were in their 80s and 90s by this point. And this was made in... I think the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. So we're talking about an event that happened over 50 years prior to, for them. And they remember it as if it was yesterday. Another source is www.b24.net slash POW Great Escape. This is another good source for you to look up. It's where I, so I got some of the details. I know the story really well. I read the book uh, by Paul Brickhill. And I've watched the movie, I don't know how many times. The soundtrack is one of my favorite soundtracks. Uh, it's just phenomenal. However, I want to caution you up front. This story does get rough at the end. But it happened, and nowadays most have forgotten about it. Or never even heard of it. So it needs to be told over and over again if necessary. Children in schools today need to know of these brave men and the chances they took. For they will be better role models than just about anyone in the entertainment business or the sports world today. So, with that in mind, let's get to the story. I want you to imagine yourself as a 20-something-year-old in the Royal Air Force, RAF for short. And your squadron has been ordered to make a bombing raid over Nazi territory. The year is 1940 to 1942. The chances of you making it back are slim as the Germans' anti-aircraft gunners are exceptional shots, not to mention the incredible force of the Luftwaffe. If you're shot down, you're likely to spend the rest of the war in a POW camp. 
if you survive. You don't get a choice in the matter. Your country is at war and has been for close to two years. You think of your family, especially your mother and your kid brother who thinks the world of you. No doubt you think of your girl, hoping and praying that you make it back to the mall, alive and in one piece. The mission comes and the worst happens. Your plane is hit and you are forced to bail out. Within moments of hitting the ground, you're captured by a German soldier. You're questioned by the soldier's commanding officer, probably a member of the Wehrmacht, and then endure more questions by the Gestapo. Finally, you're turned over to the Luftwaffe, who are in charge of all POW camps, holding Air Force officers and men. Arriving at the camp, you see barbed wire reaching heights of 15 to 20 feet, guard towers with searchlights and machine guns, and a clearing surrounding the camp in all directions before you see the darkness of the forest. A prison within a prison. You quickly adapt, getting to know the other men you're locked up with, but the frightening feeling lingers on, and every so often takes over. You've got to get out, no matter the cost, even if that means going over the wire. Death is better than prison. Only the possibility of tunneling out to freedom stops you. It'll take time, but it's safer and a better chance of success. This was the common story for thousands of British, American, French, and other Allied flyers who were held as POWs during World War II. Thousands of escapes were attempted, and every once in a while, a few here and there made it back home. Most, however, were usually caught right away and locked up in solitary confinement, otherwise known as the cooler. Then, there was this story that I'm about to tell you. As I said, it was the biggest escape ever thought of and attempted by Allied prisoners during World War II. It was dubbed the Great Escape. The place where the breakout occurred was known as Stalag Luft III, a massive POW camp maintained by the Luftwaffe. The reason behind this being because the prisoners were downed Air Force officers and they became the responsibility of the Luftwaffe as they were fighters of the air themselves, and thus had a mutual respect and also shared a mutual fact of being grounded for the duration of the war. The camp was built in 1942 in Nazi Germany, near modern-day Sagan, Poland. It was built there because below the topsoil, it was nothing but sand and they believed it would be impossible to construct tunnels under those circumstances. Also, since the top of the ground was dark, it would be easy to spot any sand being scattered by the prisoners. Just a bit cocky on their part, hmm? Two other factors were thought of to deter prisoners from escaping, and they were these. That the huts were built two feet off the ground, so you have the foundation of the huts reaching the ground, but... where the floor of the hut ends you still have two feet so you always have to climb up into the POW huts you couldn't hide dirt under there because the guards would be searching they'd be measuring that's how precise these guys were they would measure the height of the ground to the bottom of the hut they were very precise and if it was even off a milli inch they'd be like "All right, they're tunneling something we're going to start searching These guys were no joke. And the other reason is they decided to plant 
sound probing microphones to listen for any digging taking place. These weren't just like a couple of microphones put five, six feet underground. These were microphones planted 15 feet down. So they'd be like, if we hear digging of anything, we're going to know that these prisoners are doing something. But, well, those microphones didn't work out as well as they thought. The commandant of Stalaglu III was Oberst slash Colonel Friedrich Wilhelm von Lindener Wildau. Boy, that's a mouthful. A man who had fought for and loved his homeland of Germany for over 40 years through three different regimes, the last of which was the Nazi Party. Although he despised the Nazi Party emphatically, a bold misconception is that every German during the 30s and 40s were Nazis, but this is now known to be untrue. I mean, you have to think about all the Germans who decided to, when they saw and heard about what the Nazis were doing to Jews and Poles and Gypsies, they're like, no, we're, we're not going to tolerate this. Heck, even the generals on Hitler's personal staff tried to assassinate him in the end. I mean, these guys were like, no, no, this isn't right. And they decided to like, we're going to, we're done. We're not, we're no longer Nazis. They maintained the position of looking as if they were Nazis, but deep down, all they wanted to do was fight for Germany. Yet, even though he despised the party, he did not want to sit idly by and do nothing. So von Liedener accepted a position on Reichsmarschall Hermann Goering's staff and was thus appointed the commandant. There he could serve his country and maintain decent treatment of Allied POWs. British POWs were the first to arrive in April of 1942, and as the months went by, thousands more arrived. In the long run, close to 11,000 POWs were held at Stalag Luft III. The leader of escape operations was a man named Roger Bouchel, a squadron leader who had been a prisoner since helping the withdrawal from Dunkirk. He was a known troublemaker to the Germans and had attempted escape several times before being sent to Stalag Luft III. One of his breakouts had led him to Prague, where he had witnessed the atrocities of the Nazis. He held a passionate hatred for them, especially after learning that the family who had hit him for over eight months during one of his breakouts had been murdered by the Gestapo. And when he arrived after being interrogated by the Gestapo, he was determined to cause as much mischief as possible for the Nazis. He quickly organized a group of men to aid him in his desires to escape and tie up German troops looking for them as opposed to fighting on the fronts. He declared this to the men he had assembled, the men he had dubbed the ex-organization. Everyone here in this room is living on borrowed time. By rights, we should all be dead. The only reason that God allowed us this extra ration of life is so that we could make life hell for the Hun. In the North Compound, we are concentrating our efforts on completing and escaping through one master tunnel. No private enterprise tunnels allowed, gentlemen. Three bloody deep, bloody long tunnels will be dug. Tom, Dick, and Harry. One will succeed. This was the plan, and it was soon set into motion. Tunnel Tom was constructed from Hut 123 next to a stove chimney. Tunnel Dick was from the shower room of Hut 122, going parallel to Tunnel Tom. And Tunnel Harry was from underneath the stove in Hut 104. 
So, as I mentioned before, the barracks or the huts that the prisoners lived in were two feet off the ground. So how are they going to be able to get the tunnel without being spotted, like diving down? They went through the foundation of these huts. So they had to manufacture pickaxes and hammers and that type of stuff. They weren't given that stuff. The Germans kept a very neat inventory. And if they noticed that one of their pickaxes was missing, they'd instantly know the prisoners had swiped it. So prisoners had to manufacture their own pickaxes and then come up with clever ways to disguise the sound of the pickaxe cutting away at the concrete. It had to have taken months just to get to the earth. And that is highly commendable. Mind-boggling at the same time. These guys worked tirelessly, and then they had to go into the tunnel. There were several men who were appointed tunnelers. Two of the most notable were Wallace Floody and Ken Reese. They were to be the principal diggers of the tunnels. However, they weren't going to be able to use normal tools, such as shovels or trowels. Instead, they had to improvise and manufacture their own tools out of coffee cans and other such goods, usually delivered via the Red Cross. They also had no light down in the tunnel, so they had to make homemade candles out of fat they skimmed from their cooking and bootlaces that were worn thin and no longer usable. Their determination was extraordinary. While Floody, Reese, and others were busy digging the tunnels, hundreds of others had other jobs that were pivotal to the escape being successful. One of the most important jobs were the lookouts. Whenever one of the operations was in progress, these guys had to be on their toes. If they saw a German inspection coming, they had to signal the operators to cease all efforts and act like docile prisoners. Other key jobs in the operation were the scroungers, guys who were able to pilfer items needed for the escape off the German guards, including light bulbs and wire to illuminate the tunnel as opposed to fat lamps. Dirt disposers who figured out a way to get rid of close to 200 tons of sand. Tailors, who made suits out of military uniforms. Manufacturers, who built the tools. And the forgers, who created fake papers that looked so good it was hard to tell the difference between them and the real deal. The men worked tirelessly, and they were making good progress on Tunnel Tom, and it now reached an extraordinary length of over 300 feet, and the prisoners were close to going vertical. But then tragedy happened. In August of 1943, German guards known as ferrets discovered Tunnel Tom and subsequently blew it up. All their hard work, gone in an instant. But not only that, all the wood they had used for shoring up was also gone. They would have to continue on with what they had, which was nothing they weren't already used to. To let the heat die down, Bushel ordered the construction of their other tunnels to be halted for several months. During that time, the spot where Tunnel Dick was supposed to emerge from was clear for camp expansion, so the men decided to use it for storage and dirt disposal, closing it off for good. In January of 1944, they resumed digging and worked tirelessly at digging Tunnel Harry. In early March, they had another snag, 
one of their chief tunnelers, Wally Floody, was transferred to another camp with several others. Floody said he was so furious at having been transferred out so near the end of all the work. After all, he had been one of the ones digging in a narrow, cramped space, lying on his side, digging with a handmade trowel, barely able to breathe, sweating profusely, and running the risk of being buried alive every time he went down there. And now, all that hard work and effort was for naught. Have you ever been so close to finishing a goal only to have it snatched away from you at the last second? It's devastating. The other man, however, continued on with the planned escape, and on March 22nd, they were ready. The forgers started stamping papers for March 24th, and the cooks started preparing rations for the escapees to have as they made their way to hopeful freedom and home. At dusk on March 24th, the men designated for escape started assembling in Hut 104. Over 200 men were inside the hut, crowded amongst each other, waiting for their turn to go down the shaft, through the tunnel, and freedom. Bushel, his escape partner Bernard Scheidhauer, Johnny Bull, and John Marshall made their way down the tunnel to the end of the line where they had dug vertically upward. They had left roughly two feet of ground, and this was more soil as opposed to the sand they had been used to, and this caused a small problem. It had snowed earlier that day, and the ground was now frozen. Johnny Dodge carefully picked at the frozen earth till his homemade spade broke free. He peeked his head through the hole, expecting to find himself surrounded by trees and bushes. Instead, he found that they had surveyed the distance wrong and were now 20 feet short of even the first of the trees. He ducked back down and told Bushel of the problem. Bushel had to think fast. They had no choice but to escape now as their documents had been dated for that day and there was no telling when the Germans would uncover Harry. Bushel thought of a plan. He asked for a good length of rope in order to make a signal. The signal would be, two tugs, all clear. One tug, stay put. Each man was to pass the word along to the next and carry on as best they could. Roger and Bernard then made for the woods and gave the first signal and hurried off into the darkness of the forest. Various delays kept holding the escape up. An air raid on Berlin caused the camp to shut off all the lights, including the lights in the tunnel, because they were hooked up to the generator. Men unfamiliar with the tunnel jostled loose some of the bracing which would cause sand to pour down and which now had to be cleared before continuing. By about 2 in the morning, the leaders who were still there knew that getting out all 250 men would be impossible. They decided they would hold escape attempts after the 80th man made it out because by then it would be near daylight and much more chance of being seen. Ken Reese, who was one of the most pivotal tunnelers, was number 78 on the list, and he breathed a huge sigh of relief, knowing he would still be able to escape. But again, trouble arose. This time, the 77th man, Mick Shand, was awaiting the signal. He received one tug and mistook it for being the all-clear sign. He emerged from the tunnel right behind the guard who was on patrol. He froze. The men waiting just inside the tree line dared not breathe. And then it happened. The guard turned and noticed the man lying motionless no more than a yard behind him, as well as a hole in the ground. He raised his rifle and fired, raising the alarm. The men in the woods and Shan all made a break for it. 
Reese and the other men, who were the last of the escapees, hurried back up the tunnel as fast as they could. Since he was the next in line to escape, Reese was the last man to scurry back up the tunnel to Hut 104. All the while, thinking the guard who had discovered the tunnel would drop down behind them and either shoot him in the butt or bayonet him. He had no desire for either to happen and fortunately made his way back into Hut 104 where he and the others started burning their papers and eating their rations. They knew the guards would confiscate him and they did not want to face any extra time in the cooler for the findings. It ended up taking the guards quite a bit of time to locate the entrance of the tunnel. The guard dog they were using wasn't a very good sniffer. Instead, he was a much better sleeper. For he curled up on some coats that were piled up in Hut 104 and went to sleep. Hmm. Ain't he a lucky dog? It wasn't until one of the ferrets named Charlie Pills crawled down the tunnel from the exit hole and made his way through the tunnel to its starting point. When he got there, he started crying for help. I mean, I would be too if when you get there and all of a sudden you're like, it's the end of the line. Where's the entrance to this thing? Open up. The prisoners took pity on him and opened the hole and helped him from the tunnel. He emerged but he was ecstatic, telling the prisoners, German officers and guards who were assembled there, how impressed he was with the construction of the tunnel. As for the 76 who escaped, their troubles were just beginning. Most tried making it to the train depot a few miles away, but with the delays from the tunnel, many ended up missing their desired trains. Bushel and Scheinhauer were able to get on the train they wanted and started their journey to freedom. But the next day, as they waited aboard their next train, they were caught. Scheinhauer, who was French, was used to speaking English in the camp, and he fell for the oldest trick in the book. A German policeman who had looked at their papers suddenly turned around and said, Good luck in English. Scheinhauer gave it away. In perfect English, he said, Thank you. Instantly, they were arrested and taken back to Gestapo headquarters. Within two weeks... All but three of the 76 were recaptured. As for the three who managed to escape, Peter Bergslund and Jens Müller, both Norwegian officers in the RAF, managed to stow away aboard a freighter in neutral Sweden and make it safely back to England. Bram van der Stoke, a Dutch officer, made his way cross-country and safely into Spain, where he was then flown back to England from Gibraltar. All three men survived, through the rest of the war. Two of them, Van der Stoke and Müller, each wrote a memoir about their escape in their native languages. Van der Stoke in particular, I have to give more credit and praise. For this man, not only escaped from the prison camp in Zagam, Poland, but then, instead of making his way to the coast or even Switzerland, he made his way through Nazi Germany, occupied Luxembourg, occupied France, fought with the French resistance, and then continued down into Spain till he reached Gibraltar. Now, I don't know what kind of man he was in the prison camp, or how he was in his personal life, but to survive through all that is extremely remarkable, and he should be considered a hero for it. And from what I know of him, he refused the Dutch knighthood, and because he didn't think of himself as a hero, and that to me proves all the more that he was one. A couple of days after the escape, Hitler received the full detailed report, and after reading it, he blew a 
gasket. Outraged so much by the escape, he called for a meeting with his three top officers, a Field Marshal Keitel, Rice Marshal Goering, and Reichsführer Himmler. The meeting was not to be recorded, meaning no official record was to be saved. Each of the three men showed how honorable they were by blaming each other for the escape. As they argued, Hitler uttered in a cold tone that he wanted every single captured officer shot. This stunned both Keitel and Goering, and I have no way to prove this, but I believe Himmler was possessed, and I think he loved the idea of murdering their recaptured prisoners. I have no way to prove that, but that's my opinion. Hitler wanted to make an example of them, despite of violating the Geneva Prisoner of War Convention that Germany had been the first to sign back in 1929. This had no bearing on the matter. Hitler wanted them dead. But Goering feared drawback and reprisals against German POWs. Hitler relented slightly, but he still demanded more than half be executed. The list was drawn up and turned over to the Gestapo with orders to carry it out. The recaptured prisoners were expecting to be returned back to the Stalag or perhaps another POW camp. 23 were. 17 were returned back to Stalag Luf 3. Two were sent to Kolditz Castle and four were sent to Schanshausen concentration camp. The remaining 50, including Bushel, Scheidhauer, and Johnny Bull, were driven out into the countryside in twos and threes. Each car was then ordered to stop and let the prisoners out so they could relieve themselves. While doing so, they were all shot in the back of the head. All of these atrocious murders happened within a few days of each other and no more than a week since the escape had been carried out. Back at the Stalag, von Lindener knew he was toast, and surrendered to his superiors. The new commandant, Colonel Eric Cordes, asked for the SBO to come to his office on the matter of gravest importance. The SBO, senior British officer, Group Captain Massey, arrived shortly thereafter with his interpreter and fellow prisoner, Wank Murray. Cordes solemnly notified Massey that 41 of the escaped prisoners had been shot while trying to escape from the Gestapo. Massey and Murray sat in stunned silence. Massey demanded to know how many had been wounded. The reply was none. Cordes and his adjutants gave no further response. They were just as horrified at the news as Massey had been. While escorting them back to the compound, Hauptmann Pieper addressed Massey. Group Commander, please do not think this Luftwaffe had anything to do with this dreadful thing. We do not want to be associated with it. It's terrible. Terrible. Massey could only nod. He understood the man's sorrow and placed no blame on him. But at the moment, he couldn't say anything. A few minutes later, Massey assembled the men and told them of the incident. A day or so later, a list of the names of those murdered was posted. The number was 47, not 41. It was later adapted still to 50, with the addition of three more names. The other prisoners were stunned, horrified that this could happen. Shortly thereafter, 
Cortes himself was replaced with a permanent commandant, Oberst Werner Braun, and he too was horrified by the actions of the German high command. He gave permission for the construction of the memorial that von Lindener had supplied materials for. On it was inscribed the names of the 50. Here are the names of the 50. Birkland, Henry, Brettel, Gordon, Bull, Johnny, Bushel, Roger, Casey, Michael, Katanach, James, Christensen, Arnold, Cochrane, Dennis, Cross, Ian, Espelid, Haldor, Evans, Brian, Fugelsung, Nils, Gauss, Johannes, Grissman, William, Gunn, Alistair, Hake, Albert, Hall, Charles, Hater, Anthony, Humphreys, Edgar, Kidder, Gordon, Kirath, Reginald, Kilinowski, Anthony, Kirby Green, Thomas, Kolonowski, Vladimir, Kroll, Stanislaw, Langford, Patrick, Lee, Tom, Long, James, Marcinkus, Romas, McGann, Clement, McGill, George, Milford, Harold, Monshine, Jersey, Powlock, Casimirez, Picard, Henry, Poe, John, Scheidhauer, Bernard, Scannersgas, Sotiers, Stevens, Rupert, Stewart, Robert, Stower, John, Street, Dennis, Swain, Cyril, Tobolsky, Pavel, Valenta, Honest, Valen, Gilbert, Vernon, James, Wiley, George, Williams, John E., Williams, John F. They lost their lives in the line of duty. Thus ends the true story of the great escape from Stalag Luftri. As for the history behind the movie The Great Escape, it began in the mid to late 1950s. American director John Sturges read the book The Great Escape by Paul Brickhill and was determined to make a movie out of it. I highly recommend you going to watch it. It's called The Great Escape. It is one of the greatest war movies ever made in my opinion. It stars Steve McQueen, James Garner, and Richard Attenborough. Now, even though I consider it one of the greatest war movies ever made, it is highly inaccurate. And some of the biggest problems with the movie compared to historical events is they have the tunnelers digging through dirt as opposed to sand. They switched it probably for dramatic effect and also it looked better. The movie also makes it look as if the Gestapo murdered the 50 in one great big group when in fact they were taken out in twos and threes. I believe they did this also to just give that feeling of these guys are going to survive. They're going to go back to the prison camp and then the horror of you hear the machine gun being loaded and the men just turn and they see they're about to die. Nothing else is shown but you have that chilling sound effect of the machine gun and just the incredible music of Elmer Bernstein 
as the men face their final moments. It is chilling, but it is well done. The other key difference is no Americans took part in the escape. The Americans who were in the camp had got moved to a different compound, and so it was all British, Canadian, and Allied soldiers. But in the movie, it made really good sense to have three Americans. So you have James Garner and Steve McQueen headlining the cast of these prisoners. And they do a phenomenal job. One of the funniest scenes, in my opinion, in the movie is it's hilarious. They make moonshine from potatoes. So when they go to sample the moonshine, each of them takes their finger, tastes the moonshine, and just says, wow. That's it. They each have a different reaction, but that's all they say. They just say, wow. So then they take a big swallow of the moonshine after they've made enough, and they can't even talk. That's how potent the moonshine was. And a lot of people I go up to, I'll uh, be like drinking something and I'll swirl whatever I'm drinking in my mouth and down it. And then I'll just look at them and go, whoa. And they'll just look at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's from a movie scene that I love. And then I tell them about it and they just go, oh, you're weird. And I'm like, yeah, I know. (laughs) So for those of you who know that story, well, you're welcome. Now you know the true story of it. And the other big thing with Steve McQueen being in the movie, he wanted to show off his motorcycle skills. And in fact, he demanded that he'd be able to do that. Otherwise, he would walk off the project. So they decided to do this epic motorcycle chase scene. And he is riding all over Germany. And then he sees a Swiss border. He jumps over the first fence. And then he tries jumping over the second fence. And his motorcycle is shot out from under him. He survives naturally and is returned to the Stalag in normal fashion to his most occupied room in the Stalag, the Cooler. For his nickname was the Cooler King. And they have one of the greatest sound effects in the movie, which is just him throwing the baseball against the cooler wall, catching it in his baseball glove for hours on end. I mean, not in the movie, but you're given the impression that he does it for hours on end. And it is just his character. He didn't end up really liking that part, but you can't think of The Great Escape without that iconic sound of the baseball hitting against the cooler wall and back into the glove. In fact, many movies and TV shows have sort of doctored it and adapted it for their own role. It's an iconic scene. And so even though it's very inaccurate, the movie The Great Escape is very enjoyable. You will fall in love with the characters and you will wish that they had all made it. But in reality, they had to go with the fact that 50 of them were murdered by the Gestapo. So 
it's you got to just watch it take my word for it find a copy it's right now on youtube for free i do not know how long that will last but it is well worth checking out and that is the story of the great escape Thank you very much for listening to that episode of the Snowman Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you learned something new. Please share this with your family and friends so they can as well. You can find me on iTunes and Spotify. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Till next time, this is Snowman, and I'll see you now, yeah? Did you hear the one about the Ice Cube's great escape from the freezer? You could say it was a well-thought-out plan. Thought as in melted on. Never mind.